Hi, I'm Herb Kressel, editor of Radiology. This is the first in a series of monthly podcasts highlighting articles appearing in Radiology. This month, we will be highlighting articles appearing in the December 2008 and January 2009 issues. These podcasts are not meant to be mere capsule summaries reiterating the content of the feature this month in radiology, nor are they meant to be full audio digest repetitions of the article. Rather, it is our aim to highlight articles appearing in the journal and to provide more in-depth insight into their context and significance. This month, I am joined by Dr. Deborah Levine, Senior Deputy Editor of Radiology and Professor of Radiology at Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Albert DeRoos, Deputy Editor of Radiology for Cardiovascular Imaging and Professor of Radiology at Leiden University in Holland. We are fortunate to have the senior authors of two articles appearing in the journal in December and January. Dr. Mark Levine, Chief of GI Radiology and Professor of Radiology at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Priscilla Slanitz, formerly Associate Professor of Radiology at Boston University, and now recently rejoining the faculty at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. They will both help discuss their articles. One of the thrusts of quality improvement efforts in radiology is the reduction of reader variability in the interpretation of imaging examinations. In the January issue, Carino et al. report on the inter- and intra-reader reliability of a number of lumbar spine MR findings. As Drs. Jarvik and Deo note in their accompanying editorial, the study is notable for its rigorous design, the recognized expertise of the readers, and their efforts in reducing variability in reports through the use of a number of training vehicles, including the development of a pictorial online support tool. In the Carino study of 111 baseline MR examinations, the readers, for the most part, achieved only moderate agreement with kappa values of 0.44 to 0. 5.9. While the study confirms that this level of agreement is sufficient reliability to serve as a diagnostic indicator in a multicenter outcome study the investigators are participating in, many readers would have hoped that in the controlled and optimized environment, better reliability could have been achieved. In their accompanying editorial, Jarvik and Deo suggest that these results are in fact consistent with what a number of other investigators have found. They go on to suggest the need for better reader training, the training of more subspecialized readers, the development of online standardized pictorial glossaries, and the use of a standardized nomenclature in more structured reporting. It is hoped that through efforts such as these, a better understanding of the sources of variability in reporting and methods to reduce this variability may be identified. I welcome your views on your own experience and methods to reduce the variability in reporting and your suggestions on what new avenues might be pursued.
One of the uh, interesting articles in the uh, January 2009 issue of Radiology describes multi-detector CT in the diagnosis of patent foramen ovale. Specific findings at multi-detector CT are strongly indicative of patent foramen ovale. Evaluating the clinical feasibility and accuracy of 64-section CT compared with transesophageal echocardiography in 152 consecutive stroke patients, Kim and colleagues found that a left-to-right shunt through a channel-like interatrial septum on CT scans confirmed patent foramen ovale with a 98% specificity. While the sensitivity of CT is not sufficient to diagnose patent foramen ovale, the researchers noted the characteristic findings strongly suggest the presence of patent foramen ovale on routine cardiac CT scans. I am joined by Dr. Albert DeRoos, professor of radiology from Leiden University and our deputy editor of Cardiac Imaging. Albert, what do you think the implications of the findings the authors report are? Uh, what should we be doing? Should all stroke patients get multi-detector CT of the chest as well? I think this is a very interesting study which shows that gated CT allows to detect more and more abnormalities in the heart, which may be relevant to the evaluation of stroke. For example, a patent foramen ovale is a risk factor for stroke, traditionally evaluated by ultrasound. And now we see more and more articles showing that CT can also provide this type of information. So for stroke evaluation, it, ex it is expected that heart and head imaging will be integrated more and more for relevant evaluation of these patients. Albert, if echocardiography does a good job with patent foramen, why should we be doing CT at all? That may be a consideration in the future when we demonstrate that also the sensitivity of the technique is good to assess these abnormalities, also like the presence and absence of little thrombi within the left atrial appendage, then CT may become a replacement for the semi-invasive technique like transesophageal echocardiography. Thank you. In the January 2009 issue of Radiology, Dr. Levine and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania call our attention to the somewhat disturbing trend of decline in barium GI studies over the past decade. As they note, the decreased number of barium studies performed in the United States has contributed to a vicious cycle in which GI fluoroscopic procedures are adversely affected. Since radiologists perform fewer barium studies, it has been increasingly difficult for them to maintain the fluoroscopic skills required for high-quality exams. It's also become increasingly difficult to train radiology residents when one recognizes that, of course, there's no substitute for experience and doing a large volume of cases when learning how to perform these procedures. I'm uh, joined now by uh, Dr. Mark Levine, the senior author of the editorial. Uh, Mark is professor of radiology and chief of GI radiology uh, at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Levine, why did you decide to write this editorial now? Well, Herb, as a, as a GI radiologist, I'm extremely concerned about the slow 
but steady decline in the volume of GI barium studies nationwide, with many of the remaining studies being performed by increasingly senior radiologists who are at or near the end of their careers. In fact, it's increasingly difficult to find young radiologists interested or competent in performing barium studies. I think there are a number of reasons for this, including the emergence of more high-tech imaging modalities like CT and MR, and the increasing use of endoscopy and now capsule endoscopy. But the most important reason is that barium studies are highly operator-dependent, labor-intensive procedures that generate low RVUs and low reimbursement. And the sad truth is it's not necessarily in the economic interests of radiologists to perform these studies. So the purpose of our editorial was to discuss in general terms why barium studies are worth saving and to suggest a few strategies for achieving this goal. Mark, with the emergence of all these other new technologies, why is it important to save barium fluoroscopy? As a barium radiologist, I admit uh, I may be biased, but I believe that barium studies are worth saving not simply to keep the technology alive per se, but that barium studies should be preserved in order to maintain the quality of patient care. While barium radiology no longer has the dominant role it had 25 years ago, it remains a safe, cost-effective test for evaluating patients with a host of GI problems. Uh, thanks, Mark. Some might say that uh, this horse is out of the barn already. What do you think we can do now to improve the current state of practice and the availability of these techniques? Herb, I don't think it's an easy fix. First and foremost, radiology departments need to recognize the role of the barium study as a cost-effective test for patients with GI problems, regardless of financial considerations. This means that radiology chairs and administrators, both in private practice and academics, must support the concept of a fully functioning GI fluoro service, including one, the acquisition of modern state-of-the-art digital fluoro equipment, two, the hiring and training of skilled techs to assist in performing these barium studies, and three, most importantly, the recruitment of qualified young radiologists to lead the GI fluoro service. In fact, the single greatest challenge may be finding and recruiting radiologists for GI in this new paradigm. Remember, there'll no longer be full-time GI radiologists like in the olden days, but abdominal imagers doing CT and MR who also have interest and expertise in barium radiology. Still another possibility is the use of physician extenders, radiographic assistants for manning the GI fluoro service when there is a shortage of radiologists for performing these studies. These individuals could also assume a role as surrogate teachers. Uh, no one says it's gonna be easy, but where there is a will, there is a way. And I believe that even in the current environment, it's still possible to develop a paradigm in which barium radiology continues to have a role in modern radiology practice. In the end, 
It's the patient themselves who will benefit the most. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, thanks for your views. With the increasing image quality of current multi-detector CT scanners and the sophistication and enhanced experience in interpreting CT scans among radiologists, many of my colleagues have questioned whether or not oral contrast media are still necessary for evaluating the abdomen in a number of different clinical situations. Some interesting observations on this issue are provided in an article by Haria Swar and colleagues in the January issue. They report routine administration of positive oral contrast media may not be necessary for oncology patients undergoing follow-up abdominal CT examinations. Auditing the omission of contrast media administration for follow-up scans in 447 general oncology patients, Haria Swar and colleagues found that no patient needed to be recalled, no related diagnostic error has been reported, and furthermore, follow-up CT revealed no error on the audited scans. The researchers concluded that bringing positive oral contrast media for follow-up CT, which is reported by patients on their audit survey as the least pleasant part of the examination, can be safely discontinued in oncology patients undergoing treatment. While this study is based on the results of a clinical practice audit and may not be optimally controlled, the results are thought-provoking and will hopefully serve to stimulate more thought and investigation on this practically important subject. Today we have visiting the Radiology Editorial Office, Dr. Priscilla Slanitz, who did a study when she was at the Department of Radiology at Boston University Medical Center. Her study is entitled, Does Ethnicity Influence Patients' Preferences for Higher Recall from Screening Mammography Given the Potential for Earlier Detection of Breast Cancer? Dr. Slanitz, welcome. Thank you very much. So can you tell our audience what your manuscript was about? Well, essentially, we uh, looked at um, the diverse patient population that presents to our institution and wanted to get their uh, views on uh, screening mammography, their understanding about it and their compliance with it, and wanted to get a better understanding of how they felt about uh, coming back for additional imaging if their screening examination was abnormal and whether this might impact on their future compliance for screening down the road. So what did you find? Actually, it was very interesting. We did show that it appears that uh, women who are of uh, either uh, African-American or Hispanic descent are less compliant with future screening if they have a false positive result, that is that they got called back for some additional imaging after a uh, abnormal screening study. And I'm wondering, with your results, are you suggesting that you change the way we actually perform and interpret mammography, or do you change the way we educate our patients and our clinicians? Well, I think we were uh, actually quite surprised that there were such differences based on someone's uh, cultural background. And uh, what certainly concerns us is that over the last decade in this uh, country, our uh, chance of having a patient recalled for additional imaging after a screening study has actually doubled. So for this particularly vulnerable population, this does have some implications. Now, I think it is difficult for us to change our recall rate as it's obviously risen for other very important reasons. 
Um, so I think it really points to the need for all of us to develop some targeted education uh, that can be uh, given to those patients as well as uh, to the primary care providers. And what about the mammographers? Do they need additional education as well, or they should just continue doing what they do the same way they do it? Well, I think uh, from the um, mammographer standpoint, I think we do need to be a little bit uh, sensitive. Um, not that we're going to be using different recall rates for patients from different backgrounds, but I think we want to keep an eye on making sure that our recall rate does not continue to rise uh, because there is obviously the trade-off and the trade-off for this particular uh, group of women, the blacks and Hispanics, would be that uh, fewer and fewer of them will comply with screening and hence they would have even a worse prognosis down the road. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This concludes our podcast. Thank you for listening. Please feel free to email me at hkressel at rsna.org with your comments on this podcast and with your suggestions for improvements as well as your thoughts on what you would like to see included in future editions.